Good morning, my name is Whitney Kelly, and I am on staff here at Calvary, helping lead our women's ministry. Please join with me this morning as I read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and have from childhood, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Good morning. morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary. I'm often at the Erie campus, but love being able to be here with you all this morning and to open the Word of God together. We are starting a new series titled This We Believe. We're talking about what are our foundational beliefs and convictions as a church. And in this series, we're going to be going through the EFCA, that's the Evangelical Free Church of America's Statements of Faith. Uh, Not every message is going to be on particularly just one. We're going to be moving around a little bit in how we do this. But this morning, we're starting with the second statement of faith. And the EFCA, if you don't know, is a what we are a part of as a church. And so as a church, we've said we we ascribe to these beliefs. This is part of our core conviction. And the churches that are a part of the ESCA unite around these 10 core beliefs. And so we're starting with the second one today, which is the Bible. And you could start with God or the Bible. We're starting with the Bible as the foundation of how we know truth and what we know. I want to begin with an illustration that I think captures well sometimes how our culture thinks about the idea of truth. And this is called the elephant illustration. It's been given a number of ways, but uh, we actually, this morning, my wife was reading to William, our five-month-old baby, and we got a book of poems from the library, and I had already chosen this illustration. We'd already been talking about it, and then we found that just a couple pages later in the book, this was about to come up, and so we were able to have a family conversation with William about it, too, already, and so (laughs) grateful to share this illustration this morning. So, this is the illustration, roughly speaking. I think this captures some of our cultural view of truth. That truth, it's like there's this elephant, and we'll call this elephant truth. And there's six blind men, or a number of blind men, who are around this elephant. And they're each touching the elephant and trying to figure out what is this elephant like. And one of them is on the side of the elephant, and they push against it, and they say, well, you know, it's firm. It's like a wall. Another blind man, he has the tail, and he says, it's not like a wall. What are you, what are you talking about? It's, it's like a rope. You know, it, it's soft. It's, it's flexible. Another one has the tusk, and they say, it's not like a rope. It's like a spear. It's sharp. Um, another one has the ear, and they say, it's not like a spear. It's like a fan. You know, it moves, and it blows wind in your face. And the point is this. They all have a part of the truth, a part of the picture, but none of them has the whole picture. And the idea can be something like this. You have a piece of the truth, but you're limited in your perspective. You're limited in your understanding. So when it comes to these big questions of life, like is there a God? What's the meaning of life? Are we sinful? Are we good? That basically people would say, you know, there, those, when it comes to questions, when you think about God, you have to have humility to limit your understanding. Realize that you only have so much information and say, you know, we can't quite know. Each person has their own picture of truth, but ultimately, it's unknowable. 
And none of us can claim absolute truth. And if you do, it's going to be destructive. So that's something how the parable goes. And it's important because as we look at the Bible this morning, as Christians, this is the book that we believe and affirm has truth. And not just truth for me, but we believe this has an objective outside of me, the subject, outside of you, the subject, objective, big T, big picture truth about who God is, who we are, and how we should live our lives. How can we be saved? How can we be made right with God? What is the meaning and purpose of life? So we want to consider how is it possible for us as Christians to know truth? And without doing it in a way that's arrogant, I mean, looking at our, we know each of us is limited, so how is it possible for us to actually know objectively what is true beyond ourselves? I think it'd be helpful to just start by reading the statement of faith. So this gives you a glimpse of what, where are we going today? And so this is the statement. It says this, we believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors, as the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible was without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. We're going to start just with this first statement, and actually the first section of the first statement. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures. A really helpful text to affirm this idea, because the ultimate reason we believe this is because we believe this is what scripture is affirming and teaching. Uh, a good text for this is 2 Timothy 3.16 to 17. And this is what 2 Timothy 3.16 to 17 says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Now this statement says that we, or this passage says that all scripture is breathed out by God. This idea of this God-breathed inspiration of the Bible so that when we open up the word, we're not just opening the words of human authors, but we're reading the very words of God. And this idea of God-breathed entails not just that it's inspiring, like we talk about inspiration. It's not just that it's inspiring, like maybe a good song as you're going on a run and helps you run faster, or you're working out at the gym, or you see a play. It's not just inspiring in that way, but it's inspired as in it's, it's the very breath of God in his word, the very authority of God in his word. And so let's go back to that illustration again of the elephant. And let's think about the illustration. You have these blind men who are around the elephant all trying to grasp and understand what truth is. But let's change up the illustration for a moment. Imagine this. Imagine that the elephant begins to speak. And the elephant says, hold up, what you got there, that's not a tree, that's my leg. What you have there, that's not a wall, that's my side. That's, that's not a spear, that's a tusk. And the elephant begins to speak and to explain to these blind men what he is actually like. And why that's significant is because what we believe as Christians is that God is a God who actually communicates to us. He's a God who reveals himself to us. That, that truth isn't just some abstract out there thing, but truth is found in a person. It's found in God. And there's a God who desires to make himself known. He doesn't leave us blind and on our own in the world, but he desires to communicate who he is to us and who we are as his people. We believe that God has spoken. 
Now, one of the challenges often towards Christianity is this idea that Christianity is exclusive, that there's a claim to this is what truth is, and it holds it tightly. And this can be some of the appeal of this illustration. You, you see in the illustration, you get to say that everyone has their own piece of the truth, and no one's really wrong, but no one's fully right in their claims. But think about this illustration for a moment of the elephant. What do you have to do to have this illustration? You have to have someone who's watching it. There has to be these blind men around the elephant, but how were we told the story in the first place? Because there's the blind men around the elephant, but someone else has to be on the outside. And you see, they have to be able to see. Because how else could they tell us the story? And so one of the challenges that often can come up against Christianity or the scriptures is, you know, it's exclusive. It claims truth at the exclusion of other truths. But that's actually what all truth does. And even in that illustration, what you see is, is someone, in order to say that you just have part of the truth, has to ultimately say that they have the whole truth. That they can see your blindness. That they can see the blindness of all the people and that it's actually an elephant. That they can see the truth for what it is. And so the reason that's important is because ultimately all truth claims are exclusive in themselves. It's not just for Christianity that this is the case. But what we believe is this, that the reason that we have truth in the word of God is not because we're better. It's not because we're wiser. It's not because we're better looking, though you all dressed up nice. It's not because there's something great about us, but actually that there is a good and kind, loving God who desires to communicate with us. That he doesn't leave us in the dark. That he doesn't leave us to wonder, but he actually desires to make himself known to us. So we believe that scripture is breathed out by God, that he communicates to us through his word. In our statement of faith, we say that we believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, so both Old and New Testament of the Bible, through the words of human authors. So we believe he uses human authors. For some, this is a challenge because we think, okay, if, if human authors wrote this book, then how is it not flawed and full of errors? Because we know each other none of us is perfect. We're all flawed in our own way. And so it could be asked, how is it possible for a book written by humans to be without error? Second Peter 1, 20 to 21, I think does a great job of explaining this according to scripture. It says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The image that we're given here is that the authors of Scripture, how did they speak? They spoke as those who were carried along by God, led and guided by God to write the Scriptures. And so there's human authors who have their own personality, their own background information, their own history. But there is a divine author who is working through those human authors. So the point is this, that we don't actually have to pit, is it human or is it divine? Because ultimately it is God's divine direction, but he's working through the lives of human authors. God is able to work through the human authors so that it can be said that it is truly the word of God, breathed out by God, and yet using the lives of the human authors through whom it's written. And then the question comes of, well, what, how much of it? Like when you read the Bible, is it like 60% of it we would say is the word of God? Is it like 
the things that you really like in here, but you can, not the things you don't like. Like maybe you can take out the flood. Maybe take out a few other things that maybe, that maybe you're like, I'm not sure about that. You can just kind of wipe those off, but it's like 80% of the word of God. We actually, in the statement of faith, we say we believe it's the verbally inspired. And that means down to the word. Down to the word. That all of it is actually God's word. It's the verbally inspired um, word of God, and it's without error in the original writings, which could be um, used, you could use the word inerrant, without error. And I think that this is just an extension. When you think about if this is God's word, if it's God-breathed, you would expect that the word of God would have certain attributes of God. Like God is a trustworthy God. So you would expect his word to be trustworthy. Titus 1-2 says that God never lies. And so this is really the word of God, and you'd expect it to be trustworthy, reliable, something that we could trust down to the word, the verbal, verbally inspired word of God without error. In our statement of faith, we say it's without error in the original writings. And for some, that might trip them up because they think, well, what do you mean by that? Without error in the original writings? But we don't have the original writings. We have our Bible, and it's been about 2,000 years for the New Testament. How do we know that the Bible we have today is anything like that? An illustration that's been given at times is like the telephone game. And you, maybe you played this as a kid where you tell someone uh, a story or you give them a sentence and you're sitting in a circle and you, the story goes around. So maybe you'd say like beautiful bunnies bounce bountifully in botanical gardens or something like that. Some tongue twister and you pass it on and then the next person tries to get it, but they, they mess it up a little bit and it keeps on going around and the message gets changed and changed and changed. And people might look at the scripture and say, look, we've had 2,000 years of the telephone game. Do we, what, what do we have here? You know, it's, it's changed over time. It's transformed. Uh, it's still a good book, but, but it's changed over time. Now, I don't think that's a good illustration of how the scriptures are actually handed down to us. And, and here's why. The reality is that for the New Testament, just talking about the New Testament here, we have actually not just one message that's been passed down. It's not like we've just heard the last message. But for the Greek New Testament, we have over 5,800 Greek New Man Greek Testament or Greek New Testament manuscripts. Over 5,800. And some of those are larger segments, some of those smaller. Um, but the point is we have 5,800 manuscripts that we can look back on and see, okay, is what we have now actually reliable? And if you include other languages like Latin and Syriac languages, you end up with over 25,000. And so we have, if you think about this, over 25,000 manuscripts. It's not like the telephone game. It's like over and over confirming, is this the right message? And these scribes who would be copying this down, it wasn't some minor matter. It was actually, for many of them, their, their livelihood. They would copy down the text. There's incredible significance that what they recorded was accurate. Now, if you hear that and you think, well, that sounds like some stat you would read in the front of your Bible. The truth is that you can find that right now on Wikipedia. 5,800 Greek, New, Greek Testament, New Testament manuscripts, 25,000. That it, we, Even on Wikipedia, it's going to tell you it's the best attested to work of ancient antiquity. There's no writing that we have from the ancient world that is better attested to than the New Testament, than our Bible that we have today, which is quite a profound thing. Now, there's other challenges to the Scripture. Sometimes the question is, well, doesn't it contain contradictions? Aren't there things in here that we just know aren't true anymore? And if that's, if that's where you're at, I, I just say, 
wrestling through challenges in the Bible, I think, is a healthy part of actually working through Scripture. There are proposed contradictions. I don't, like, I, we, don't, we don't believe that any of those stand up. But there are proposed contradictions of how does this gospel writer record this account? How does this gospel writer? And a lot of times, if you take some time to read and study through those, you can find really helpful information. Not just say in my own life. I remember one time I was probably in eighth grade reading about the flood. And for me, it wasn't so much a contradiction or apparent contradiction. It was just the offense of, could God really wipe out the whole world except Noah and his family? I just, I just remember being struck by that. And in my own life, and I know this is true for many of you in here, you've had to work through challenges as, you, as you've confronted the word of God. And I encourage you in that process to keep doing that. And maybe, maybe you're unsure of it. Maybe there's people in your life who are unsure of it, but to continue to work through it. Because I'm convinced that it will be intellectually satisfying when you dig into those questions. That there is strong foundation that we can believe from the word of God. That you'll see that it really is without error. It, it is true. What it teaches is true. And, and more than that, it just that there's no book that's going to describe more our actual needs as people. The way that the world is. The hope that we have. There's no book that can describe the real state of humanity and the hope that we need as people. And so all that to say, if you're in a point where you're struggling with believing the Bible, I just encourage you to continue in that process. And it's okay to wrestle through those questions. I, I think that's going to be part of the Christian journey is working through challenges in the Bible. Now, those are some general arguments for the reliability of Scripture. But what I want to do now is I want to pivot for a moment and, and this, ask this question, what do the Scriptures actually reveal? What do the Scriptures tell us, and what should our response be to what's in the Scriptures? In regard to what the Scriptures reveal, our statement of faith says they're the complete revelation of his will, of God's will for salvation. They reveal who God is, who we are, and how we can be saved. In John 5.39, Jesus is talking to some religious leaders, and this is what he says to them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is talking to these religious leaders who have the Old Testament. Sometimes it's been said, you know, isn't the Old Testament different from the New Testament? Don't these kind of clash with one another? Jesus is loving in the New Testament. God seems angry in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, look, you have the Old Testament. And here is Jesus before them. He says, you search them because you think that you have life in them. But what should they do if they've read their Old Testament, right? They should come to Jesus. He says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so what does that mean? It means that the scriptures point us to Jesus. And the way that we are saved is as we follow the scriptures to Christ, who is our salvation from God. And this is important for us because these are intellectual, religious leaders of their time who would have had the Bible, who would have had the answers, who would have looked at the world outside of them and said, you know, the world is sinful and outside of this. I think the danger for us today is, is that we could look at others and say, you know, okay, the world's lost. They're without hope, but, but we're good, right? I mean, we're wise, we're intelligent, we're smart. We, we know the word of God. But if we really read the word of God, what we realize is that we need a savior. That we need a God who can save us from our sin. And Jesus says, you search the scriptures, but you refuse to come to me. And, and the challenge for us is that we would know 
Christ as we read the scriptures. They would lead us to him. And so God's word saves us because it leads us to Jesus, who is our salvation. And he's the one the scriptures bear witness to. So the scriptures save us and they also guide us. Our statement of faith says that the scriptures are the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. The ultimate authority. I recently heard a a sermon where the teacher was claiming that there are things that are anti-Christ in the Bible. Now, to be sure, this is not what I'm saying is true. But he said there are things that are anti-Christ in the Bible. And what he was basically setting up is this dichotomy where you have the Jesus who we follow as Christians, who's loving, good, kind, compassionate. But then you have things in the Bible that aren't so Jesus-like. And that these things contradict who Jesus is. And so you kind of have to sift through the Bible and figure out what's like Jesus, what's not like Jesus. Follow things that are like Jesus, but forget about the rest. And so he suggests that you read your Bible and you look for everything that's antichrist in the Bible. And he said this, you'll find antichrist in the Old Testament and you'll find antichrist in the New Testament. You'll find antichrist in Paul, in Peter. He's setting up this idea that you find things that are opposed to God in the Bible, you cut those things out, but your Christian faith doesn't rely on the Bible. It's following Jesus. But what's the problem with that? If all scripture is God-breathed, then how do, we, how do we cut any of it out? If Jesus looks at the Old Testament and says, this bears witness to me, what would we say is unlike Christ or doesn't actually lead us to Christ? Now, to be sure, sin is told of in the scripture, and it's not always affirming of the sin of the people. You can see many flaws of the people in scripture, but the idea of scripture not leading to Christ or being opposed to Christ puts us in a situation where ultimately we have to judge the word of God by our own standards of reason and rationality and morals rather than actually being judged by God and his word. Uh, One former pastor, Tim Keller, puts it this way. He says, now what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? He goes on just a moment later and he says that you won't, you'll have this, you'll, you'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship in genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of personal relationship with God. It is the precondition of it. And his point is this, in any relationship that we have as finite and fallen people, we're limited and we're sinful. We're gonna have to change. When you truly have a relationship with someone, you're gonna realize ways that you are going to need to change and you're gonna realize your weaknesses. And how much more true is that with a God who is infinite in his understanding and who is perfectly righteous as we come into contact with him? To be a precondition means the only way that you can really have a relationship with God is when you accept his authority through his word. Because otherwise, your God will always be like a projection of yourself, never able to contradict you, never able to change you. I think this is the reason why we have to actually accept the whole authority of God. Because otherwise, we ourselves will continue to be our own authority. 
So the question is, is when you come into a dispute with God's word, what's going to budge? Is it you or is it God's word? So scriptures lead us to salvation in Christ and they're our ultimate authority. And the final statement I think captures well our response to this. It says this, Therefore it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Believed, obeyed, trusted. The idea is this, that we, we come into contact with God's word and it's actually supposed to change us. By God's grace, he transforms us through his word. But what I want us to understand is this, that the ultimate barrier, we talk about some reasons to believe in God, but the ultimate barrier, the ultimate reason that someone will or won't believe in God isn't the evidences. There's actually plenty of evidence for God's existence. There's plenty of evidence for God's truth. Romans 1 reveals that God's actually known by all. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So note that. It's by our unrighteousness that we suppress truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What this is saying is that God is known. His divine attributes, his divine attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, that these things have been known in creation ever since the creation of the world. But why do we not believe? Actually, that, that sin affects our hearts and our minds. This is what's sometimes called the noetic effects of sin. The effects of sin on our mind to keep us from believing that the fall into sin doesn't just affect our bodies. It doesn't just affect our relationships with one another and with God. It doesn't just affect our world, but it actually affects our very thinking. And we struggle with becoming darkened in our mind. Hebrews 3.12 uses the language. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, just note that statement there. An unbelieving heart. You think, wouldn't you want to say an unbelieving mind? Why heart? I think it's because what you love and worship actually affects what you believe. Think about it this way. Uh, personally, I am a Steelers fan, and... Hope that you all still love me after this, and I understand if not. Um, but I'm guessing in here we have a lot of Broncos fans, right? I think I saw a Broncos shirt earlier, and so we got Broncos fans in here. Imagine we're doing this. We're watching a football game together, and there's a touchdown pass that's thrown by Russell Wilson, and it's disputed whether the, whether the receiver had two feet into the end zone. And so we're going to go to the review, but we know what's going to happen when we watch the review. All the Broncos fans are going to say, it's a touchdown, it's a touchdown. But me and my wife and maybe my A.B. William will say, it's not a touchdown, he was out. Because we're Steelers fans. We're biased, right? We're all biased. And when it comes to something like a football game, maybe some of you are more objective. But the reality is, our love, our affiliation with our team, is it going to affect what we believe? And if that's true in something trivial like a football game, how much more true is it in the most important matters of our life? and the ultimate authority that God seeks to claim upon our lives. 
Jesus says, anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing and that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, if that's the case, what hope do we have for believing the gospel? What hope do we have that we can share the gospel with other people and they could believe? I think it's this, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the God who at the beginning lets light shine out of darkness. He speaks the world into existence. What's being said here is that same God now is able to come to us when we are blinded, when we're in sin, and to shine the light of Jesus into our hearts. What that means is the ultimate reason, if you're a Christian, the ultimate reason that you believe in Jesus is not because you're smarter. It's not because you're wiser. It's not because you're better looking. It's not because you deserve it. The ultimate reason is because there is a God who graciously has communicated himself to us, who has saved us, who has come to us in our sin, and who has revealed his son to us so that we would be saved. And just as he spoke the world into existence, so he's able to speak into existence new life into our hearts through the gospel of Jesus. And here's why that's so significant. One takes away any pride we could possibly have in being Christians. We're not those who are, have removed the blindfold and, and given ourselves wisdom and insight. We're, we're those who have been given life and understanding by a God who is gracious, not by our works, not by what we deserve. And so too, the reason that you can share your faith and believe that God can move in your life and in the lives of those around you is because there is a God who desires to communicate himself. And there's a God who's able to shine light into the most darkened of hearts because that's what he's done in each one of us who have come to believe. So our confidence is there is God who's revealed himself so that the faith of a child can be legitimate. Not because a, a child can defend every aspect of the Christian faith, but because their faith is in Jesus who saves. And we love, I mean, I love apologetics. We can love apologetics. And there's great reasons to defend and give reasons why we believe what we believe. But it's such an encouraging thing to know that the gospel has power to save. Because God is a God who is constantly breaking down the barriers that we have, dealing with the most important barrier, which is our sin, by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to save us and to deal with our sins.